In terms of benefits for men and women, I would say that men and menopausal women have the easiest time with intermittent fasting because there's not as much hormonal fluctuation day to day or week to week. I think women that are still at peak fertile years, so 35 and under, especially thin women, have to be conscientious and careful about when they choose to fast. There's a time in a menstrual cycle when women can get away with some fasting because the thing to remember about fasting, irrespective of your gender, is that it is a form of hormesis. It is beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. And so for women that are thin and still in their peak fertile years, your body is taking in information around you all the time, trying to determine if you are in a position to be able to sustain a pregnancy, mm-hmm. even if you're choosing not to get pregnant. The other side of that is that we have a nation of very metabolically unhealthy individuals. So if we have women with PCOS and insulin resistance and diabetes. Those women absolutely benefit from intermittent fasting, from eating less often. Again, being cognizant of where they are in their menstrual cycle. So I do think that men and women have derived different benefits, but the the key theme for me really when we're talking about those gender differences is understanding that there's a time in a woman's life when she has an easier time fasting and men get a like total free pass. More often than not, they can get away with a lot more fasting. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks Come from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the rock apart Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt Welcome to the show, everyone. You are officially tapped into episode number 279 of the Decoding Success Podcast, where we are joined by our friend, Cynthia Thurlow. Now, as a high performer, you already get this. You're trying to max out all of the buckets in your life. You do this through listening to podcasts, attending events, reading books, doing this, doing that. Those buckets, of course, health, relationships, career, business, finances, and so on. So on today's episode, we're going to shift our focus over to the health bucket and how we can pour into that bucket through proven strategies to help us max out. More specifically, we're going to be learning how to eat properly and break the conditioning we've been dealt when it comes to food. Now, Cynthia and I very much so come from the same background, so our conditioning is pretty much the same. Why we're built to eat less than we've been conditioned to believe, and Cynthia is going to talk about a statistic specifically regarding the United States and how we've been operating. It's honestly mind-blowing. We're going to reverse engineer how to fast to shine light on this modality in a different way than you've ever heard before. We're diving into links between diet, fasting, and anxiety. And of course, we're going to be tapping into the mindset side of things to access our greatest and highest self. To do so, of course, we are joined by the absolutely brilliant Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner, author, podcast host, TEDx speaker with over 13 million views on her second TED Talk. It is linked in the show notes of this episode. She has over 20 years of experience in health and wellness. She's globally recognized as an expert in IF, intermittent fasting and women's health. She's been featured all across the board, ABC, Fox, KTLA, CW, Medium, Entrepreneur, all over, like I said. Her mission is to educate women on the benefits of intermittent fasting. That does not mean her knowledge, her wisdom, her experiences do not apply to men. They very much so do. And overall holistic health and wellness. So they feel empowered to live their most optimal lives. Before diving in, I want to shine a light and share my gratitude for you tapping into your greatest self just by listening to a podcast, listening to this podcast. I literally get the chills every damn time I say it, but it needs to be shared. 
Acknowledge yourself, yes, you right here in this moment, for the commitment you are making within this one-hour time frame. Seriously, it might seem so normal because you just do this. You listen to the pods, you read the books, you do the breath work and the meditating, all this and that. But this is work, and you deserve your flowers for it. To add, I will say, there's people in your life that are also ready to do this work, but maybe they don't know where to start. Sharing this episode with them can give them that little extra oomph. I don't know how to spell oomph, but we're going with oomph to get the ball rolling on their journey. Share this episode with those in your life, whether it be on social or via text, maybe even in convo, face-to-face, word of mouth. Be that beacon of light. And now, without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Cynthia Thurlow. Cynthia, welcome to Decoding Success. Really excited for this conversation and where it's going to go. I am super curious on the topic of intermittent fasting. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I've been looking forward to our conversation. I'm curious, how are you? That's the best way to start all these conversations. (laughs) How are you? What's going on in the life of Cynthia? Yeah, no, I'm doing well. I literally uh, just booked a vacation for my family and I for the fall. I have a rising senior. And so time is precious right now. And I was Mm. saying to my husband, as much travel planning as I can be thinking about in the future, the better off we will be. Well, you you travel often. I've heard you on an interview, or maybe I think it's often, but believe that you went on a trip to Morocco for your anniversary. Is that correct? Yeah, that was in 2018. So for our 15th, we went to Morocco and Spain. And Spain is one of our favorite places to travel to. And we had never been to Morocco. So yeah, that was a really fun, very hot Moroccan (laughs) experience. But my husband's always game for traveling to places neither of us have been to. And that was definitely a fun experience and, and definitely one that, you know, has had some lasting repercussions or some lasting impact in terms of picking up some food poisoning while I was there. Mm. And then the irony is, and the reason why this is relevant will become apparent in a second, but I remember we got to Spain and I had, you know, this whole day of just kind of pretty significant food poisoning symptoms. And someone in Spain said, oh, everyone gets that when they go to Morocco. And I was like, oh, no one ever told me that. Not my travel agent, not my, not anyone who's been there before me. And so, yeah, never a dull moment. But that's, you know, when you travel, you just have to kind of roll with your experiences. Oh, absolutely. When you were in Spain, did you have paella? I did. The first time I had paella in Spain was with my whole family in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. We actually took a cooking class. And so we now know how to make traditional paella. But yeah, it was delicious. I think there's nothing to be said that a lot of Southern European countries really take their food very seriously. I would say Spain more seriously than a lot of other places we've been. And so we've just really grown to love the culture. And I mean, There's nothing about Spanish food that I don't like. So it's a fun place to travel to. What do you think about, especially being that this is like your niche, what do you think about the food difference, like the quality difference? I remember the last time I was in Europe was 2018. And it's funny. I mean, you're going to laugh at me when I give you this example, but we were in Saint-Tropez in France and we just wanted something quick before we went to dinner. So we ended up going through a Burger King drive-thru. But even that tasted so different, like so different. I'm curious, like, did you pick up on the differences? Like, what do you think about them. Yeah. I mean, anytime we travel, we always try to go to food markets because Mm -hmm. I always love to see like how people prioritize and value nutrition and Mm -hmm. how they value and prioritize the way that the quality of the food that they eat. And so, you know, even though I had at the time, gosh, my boys 
we were in Spain with them. I'm trying to think what year it is. So the pandemic has kind of messed up my memory, but like 2018 timeframe, 2017. And so we went to this amazing, we took a food tour. And part of that was going into this incredible food market outside of Barcelona. And, you know, you walk around and you're trying meat and cheese and fruits. And my kids are like, why don't we have grocery stores like this at home? Mm. And so I think that not only do people appreciate and value the food that they eat, it's not a means to an end. I think here in the United States, so much of our perception around food is that it's a means to an end. You don't savor it. You don't enjoy preparing it. You sure as hell don't care what it does to yourself. And if you really understand what a lot of the impact is of these hyper palatable, highly processed foods really makes a big difference. So from my perspective, it's really interesting on how much of a net impact it makes when you travel abroad and you can experience the way other people eat and, you know, either like lean into it or try to kind of cater to a more Americanized palate. So when you travel, do you behave like eating wise or do you like find yourself being flexible? Well, I think flexibility is really important Mm -hmm. irrespective of who you are and where you travel. I just know that I'm at a stage in my life where I really don't feel good if I eat things like gluten and dairy. So avoiding them when I travel is not a big deal, thankfully. But I, you know, I've relaxed those intermittent fasting rules. Maybe I fast longer. Maybe I have a wider feeding window. Do I indulge in dessert? Absolutely. But I'm also very active when we travel. So Mm. I always feel like it kind of balances itself out. And I think it's important when you travel to try different things to not be really food rigid. And by that, I mean, you know, I was in London with my cousin last month and we tried a lot of different foods. We went and had amazing dim sum. We had a very traditional Indian dinner and were completely open-minded and kind of asked the servers, you know, to make suggestions on like their favorite dishes. So I think it's important to not just eat, you know, like a hamburger and French fries when you travel. I think it's fun to partake in like local fare or local food that might be less common to you. Or I used to be a bit of a foodie before I had kids. And then having kids, even though my children are pretty open-minded and obviously travel a lot with us, you know, you get a little less so because it may not be like your kids don't necessarily want to sit down and have a steak and a side of like spleen. So (laughs) not that we eat a ton of organ meat, but the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, when you've been a foodie for a long period of time, and then your world gets a little smaller because we have a child with food allergies, I think it's fun when you travel to just get outside your comfort zone and try things that you might not otherwise try because you may actually be pleasantly surprised. There was even a restaurant we went to in London right before the theater and they had some really unusual things on the menu. And so my cousin and I tried them out just to see what it would be like and we're pleasantly surprised. I love that. I love that. It leads me to ask you this. I I feel like you've been doing this before it was sexy, but where did intermittent fasting come into your life? Like, why did it come into your life? Yeah. You know, I think the irony is that in uh, one week in 2015, I had a personal trainer, a clinician friend of mine, just bring up intermittent fasting. I kept thinking to myself that the universe is bringing me this concept. I should probably consider it. And so I bought a book, book convinced me that there was real like scientific basis to this. And then I started doing it for my health because I, like a lot of other middle-aged people, I'd never been weight loss resistant. And all of a sudden I was, and everything I had taught my patients over the years wasn't working. And so I had to kind of reinvent the fact that maybe I didn't have all the answers and maybe I needed to be open-minded. And so initially with intermittent fasting, I really enjoyed it because because I had so much mental clarity and I had so much energy and later I lost the weight, but it kind of bubbled over into my conversations with patients and with clients. Cause by that point I had kind of had a side gig as well as seeing patients in the office and clinic and hospital. And 
a lot of women in particular were really receptive because they too were weight loss resistant and, and everything else they had been trying and every strategy that had, they had learned in their 20s and 30s were no longer really effective. So I always tell people very transparently that I came to intermittent fasting out of a curiosity for the N of one, but I stayed for all the other benefits because I saw so many of my patients and clients that felt so much better. And then my husband started doing it and now he still fasts every day. It's really fun to kind of watch that unless we're on vacation. He in particular tries to keep up with our teenage boys and that's always fun to kind of watch because he forgets that he's not a teenage boy, nor does he have the metabolism of a teenage boy. So I get to watch the three of them kind of battle it out. I love that. Now, what are the benefits of IF? I know, I mean, I've done my fair share of research. I've done 24-hour fasts, which we'll talk about. What are the benefits? And then I'm curious, I have a second question to that. I'll throw it in there for the sake of it. Do the benefits change between men and women? Oh, it's such a good question. So general benefits for men and women include things like more mental clarity, more energy. And that is a byproduct as we are becoming more metabolically flexible, as our bodies are able to effectively utilize both carbohydrates and fats as a fuel source and our insulin levels are lower, we will have more mental clarity. There's also another fuel substrate called ketones. Mm. And if ketones diffuse across the blood-brain barrier, there's something called BDNF, so brain-derived neurotrophic factor that gets diffused across the blood-brain barrier, then we have a lot of mental clarity. That's like the light bulb goes on. Oh my gosh, I feel so amazing. I'm not having these energy gyps. But in terms of other benefits, obviously, changes in body composition and weight loss is usually a huge focus for many people. I think about this process called autophagy, this waste and recycling process in the body that goes in, it gets upregulated in an unfed state. And so for most of us, if you're the average American, you're eating six to 10 times a day. So you're really not allowing your body to go in and take out the garbage from your cells, from your organelles, your mitochondria. So really, really important to understand that. I would say, you know, a reduction in inflammation and oxidative stress. Sometimes those terms are kind of obtuse. People are like struggling to understand what does that mean? Acute inflammation is when you get a cut or you stub your toe. There are specific items that will go to the site of injury to try to help heal it. It's chronic inflammation, inflammation over the long haul that can be very damaging to the body. Also changes in biophysical markers. So blood pressure improvement, lipids, specifically triglycerides, HDL can improve, fasting insulin, fasting blood sugar. We have a nation of metabolically unhealthy people. And so I love intermittent fasting the most because I've seen some significant changes in metabolic health when individuals are eating less frequently. And then also there's really solid research on reductions in neurocognitive disorders like Parkinson's and mm -hmm. Alzheimer's dementia. And for anyone that doesn't know, Alzheimer's is considered to be type 3 diabetes. It is a blood sugar problem, a metabolic health problem. And women are at greater risk for Alzheimer's once they transition into menopause, which is 12 years without a menstrual cycle. And then also reduction in certain types of cancers, some of the female reproductive cancers, colon cancer, etc. Now, in terms of benefits for men and women, I would say that men and menopausal women have the easiest time with intermittent fasting because there's not as much hormonal fluctuation day to day or week to week. I think women that are still at peak fertile years, so 35 and under, especially thin women, have to be conscientious and careful about when they choose to fast. There's a time in a menstrual cycle when women can get away with some fasting because the thing to remember about fasting, irrespective of your gender, is that 
it is a form of hormesis. It is beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. And so for women that are thin and still in their peak fertile years, your body is taking in information around you all the time, trying to determine if you are in a position to be able to sustain a pregnancy, Mm -hmm. even if you're choosing not to get pregnant. The other side of that is that we have a nation of very metabolically unhealthy individuals. So we have women with PCOS and insulin resistance and diabetes. Those women absolutely benefit from intermittent fasting, from eating less often. Again, being cognizant of where they are in their menstrual cycle. So I do think that men and women have derive different benefits. But the the key theme for me really when we're talking about those gender differences is understanding that there's a time in a woman's life when she has an easier time fasting and men get a like total free pass. More often than not, they can get away with a lot more fasting. That has a lot to do with where women are in their fertility years or not. But I, I love intermittent fasting and I think it's such a great strategy. And it's one that I hope people really take away that it's very doable. It's not designed to be rigid. It's not, you're not, it should not be a function of white knuckling it. It should really be something that you do to embrace your body. Absolutely. I want to get clear on something that I believe you mentioned. I want to make sure that I heard this correctly. You said the average American eats six to 10 times per day. And that's probably a conservative estimate that was based on research from Sachin Panda, who is a very well-regarded, you know, chronobiology fasting researcher. And there was a study that was done in 2021 looking at people inputting data into a food app. So they were tracking what people were eating. And it was surprising six to 10 times. I've seen as many as 16 times a day because people don't realize that our beverages count too. So liquid calories do count. And a lot of people drink sugary beverages all day long. They have Frappuccino from Starbucks. Sorry, Starbucks. (laughs) They're drinking, you know, soda all day long. And then they're having, you know, sugary beverages in the afternoon because they're looking for a pick me up because they get an energy slump. And so when you really think about it, it's kind of disgusting with it, you know, to think that 10 to 12 times a day of eating is somehow going to benefit you metabolically. So yeah, you did hear me right. And that is based on solid research, but it's it's something that really speaks to the fact that we need to educate our patients and our communities about how to eat properly for our bodies. And it's not like I'm not shaking my finger and being judgmental. I'm saying this in the most loving way possible. You are not going to live a healthy life if you do what the average person does. Mm. I agree. Why is our body built to eat less than what we've been taught, right? Because that's the first question that comes to mind. If you're saying six to 10 times a day, and I get it, that also includes liquid beverages with calories. But like, why is our body meant to eat less than we've been taught? And I come from, you know, a European household, which there's conditioning involved within that. So I'm curious. Well, so we wouldn't be here as a species if we couldn't go periods of time without food. I always talk about this role of like feasting and famine. Mm -hmm. And you know, 10,000 years ago, there was not a quick mart and there wasn't a grocery store and there wasn't Uber Eats available. People really did have to, I mean, I'm being totally serious. My teenagers find that appalling when I, when I make this argument, but we are a byproduct of physiology that allows us to tap into stored fat as a fuel source. And even thin people, like, let me be clear, you don't have to be overweight or obese. Even thin people have plenty of stored fat to use as a fuel source. I'm not suggesting starvation. I'm just saying from the perspective, we eat too often and we eat too much. And so really understanding that physiologically, we are here as a species because our body has this innate ability to go in and use the stored fuel and to be able to use it very effectively. And I remind people that it's really only a byproduct of the last 50 to 100 years where we've had a plentiful amount 
And I hate even saying the word plentiful. We have too much processed, hyper palatable food that tricks our body into thinking it's nutrition when it's just garbage. Mm. And it's garbage on every level. It might be fun. Like my kids sometimes will say fun food and I have to remind them that it doesn't actually have any nutritional value. And, and this is where I think the advent and the rise of the processed food industry came out of World War II with a desire to help women get freed up in the kitchen. But what it has done is conditioned generations of individuals that cooking is too hard, that food doesn't have to be nutritious. It just needs to be fast. And so I oftentimes will have to remind patients and clients that we need to just get back to basics. Like if you were to be in my house, I have teenagers. Let me be clear. There is healthier chips and things like that because I'm a realist. Like they're either going to eat it in my house or they're going to go buy the real thing. Like the, I'm going to poke a whole, like Pringles and Doritos and things <laughs> like that, that have no nutritional value, but are designed to be hyper palatable, light up your brain, light up, you know, dopamine hits in your brain to make you want more and more and more. And your body doesn't even realize you're continuing to eat more calories and more food. But I'm a total realist, but I'm also, we're a family that eats 95% of our food from home. We make it mm. ourselves. And when I go out, it's really designed to be a celebration or we're getting together with friends. I allow myself not to think about what my food has been cooked in because then I won't enjoy my food. But the point of why I'm sharing this is that we have been conditioned to believe that cooking is too hard and that we don't want to be looking at food quality. We want to be looking at what's cheap and fast. Yeah. And that is eroding and destroying our health as a nation. Absolutely. It leads me to ask you, what is the ideal gap time between meals, right? Because if we're eating, I guess I'm guilty of that sometimes six to 10 times per day. I'm a snacker and I'm trying to be better with that. But like, what is the ideal gap time between food, uh, between meals? I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think if you look physiologically with what's going on in the digestive system, I think four to five hours between meals is ideal. Okay. That may not be realistic every single day, but there are processes that go on like the migrating motor complex, just one of these nerdy things that I love to talk about because I remind people that the migrating motor complex needs that amount of time. It acts as a almost like a, a janitor in the digestive system. It's kind of pushing debris along. It's getting rid of parasites, things that don't belong. And the migrating motor complex really gets derailed when you're eating frequently. Like your body doesn't know what to do with all this excess food. So what it ends up doing in many levels is it just starts storing it. Mm -hmm. So if you're eating too much fat, too many carbs, you really don't store too much protein. That's almost impossible to happen. And so, you know, from my perspective, I feel best when I have at least four hours in between meals. Now, are there days like as an example, today is a good day of this. I had a protein shake because I had so many meetings. I have not yet eaten a meal. But when I'm done with our conversation, I will actually go and sit down and have a real meal. And then that might be my last meal of the day, just depending on how much food I've eaten, how much you know protein have I consumed. And so this is where there's a degree of experimentation necessary for people to figure out where their sweet spot is. I think a lot of people also do better eating earlier in the day as opposed to later. And we can certainly talk more about that. So if our bodies store less protein, and forgive me for not remembering the exact words you used, is it most important to emphasize protein in our meals? Yes. And I have to give Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who is a good friend, I have to give her a lot of credit for educating me in this area probably three or four years ago when we first met. So we need a certain amount of protein with each meal to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and to hit these kind of leucine thresholds. Leucine is a type of amino acid. So I typically will say to my female patients, you want to have at least 
30 to 50 grams of protein in your meal. And a lot of people are, are so grossly under eating protein, they're never satiated. Protein mm. is very satiating. Like I know if I eat a bolus of protein that's 50 to 60 grams, I'm completely full. There's no more, There's no, I can't eat anything else. And so what I find is most individuals are consuming too many of the wrong types of carbs, too many of the wrong types of fats and really under eating protein. Like how many women I work with are consuming 50 grams a day total. Now to a guy that probably seems like nothing, but to a lot of women, they think they're doing themselves a benefit by consuming that little of amount of protein. And the other piece about protein that I think is so important is that as we get older, so if you're north of 40, there's something called sarcopenia. There's a couple things that start to happen, but sarcopenia is something that's worth discussing. It's muscle loss with aging. That is a byproduct of the, a normal physiologic adaptation that will happen. It doesn't have to be your norm, but it is for many people. And as you are replacing muscle with fat tissue, so think about young muscle is filet, middle-aged muscle, older muscle looks like a ribeye, right? Like a ribeye is delicious to eat, but we don't want our muscle to look like a ribeye. We don't want to have muscle fiber being replaced by adipose tissue, which tends to be highly inflammatory. There's a lot of cytokines and things that can go on and be incredibly disruptive. But as we're losing muscle, we're losing insulin sensitivity. So Mm. big takeaway is protein is very important. You're probably not eating enough. Number two, you have to lift weights to help maintain that muscle mass. And number three, being really conscientious. So when you sit down to have that meal, making sure you have enough protein because your protein needs also start to increase as you get older. It seems counterintuitive. Like I have very athletic teenage boys. One would think they need more protein than I do. No, actually I need more than they do because my body is kind of, it's aging in a different direction, right? So really important for people to understand that protein is that macro that those needs need to be met every day. Hey everyone, taking a quick pause here to rekindle the importance of this particular thought. Confidence is key, and in so many areas of our life, especially when it comes to dating. There's just something about confidence that can be felt from an energetic perspective when you're on the prowl for your person. Now, here's the thing. You could bolster your confidence in numerous different ways through self-care, whether it be exercise or diet or getting things done. Exactly what we're talking about in this episode here today. But if you struggle to find worthwhile connections, it can be rather difficult to feel your best when meeting new people. Now, with our partners Talkify, You feel confident that you're meeting someone special who was picked specifically just for you. Talkify is the country's number one modern matchmaking service that is designed to help you achieve relationship success. In other words, filling that relationship bucket and maxing it out. Their trusted compatibility specialist hand-selects successful and compelling candidates so you can date consciously and productively. Now here's how it works. Talkify matchmakers meet with you to learn about what you are looking for in your partner. Then they're going to select and screen potential candidates once again for you, doing background checks, video interviews, and asking the tough questions that are a little too awkward for first dates. From there, your matchmaker plans your date introductions and handles all the communications for you, creating a safe and stress-free dating experience. Talkify is committed to finding your match, and their stats prove it. 80% of matched clients met their person within the first 12 matches. And right now, Talkify is offering our listeners right here at Decoding Success 20% off when you become a client at Talkify.com forward slash DSP. That's T-A-W-K-I-F-Y dot com forward slash DSP for 20% off when you become a client. You can check out the link in the show notes of this episode, Talkify.com forward slash DSP. Now back to the show. 
I appreciate this so much. It's honestly eye-opening and it leads me to want to try and reverse engineer this. I've heard many people talk about intermittent fasting, but I want to ask you how to do fasting wrong. Like if you were doing fasting wrong, what would that look like? Such a good question. The things that I commonly see, number one is not eating enough protein. So I'll pick on OMAD as an example. OMAD is one meal a day. It's fine. You know, you go on vacation, you eat too much, you have a big party, you're stuffed. The next day you have one meal a day, totally fine. But cumulatively over time, unless you are hitting 100 grams a day minimum of protein, you are going to contribute to more muscle loss, more insulin sensitivity loss, all these things that we were just talking about. Not to mention the fact, in addition to muscle loss, you also like lose strength. That's another, you know, medical term where you're losing strength. That's another thing that can happen. And how many patients that I take care of in clinical cardiology that couldn't get off the bedside commode in the hospital. I don't want to be one of those people. So I want to continue to build muscle as we're getting older. So number one, you don't eat enough protein. So that's why OMAD can be problematic. Number two, there are, I have to believe, well-meaning people in the social media space who tell people all the time, oh, if it's under 50 calories, it doesn't matter in a a fasted state. Mm. Well, if most of our population is not metabolically healthy, those indiscriminate calories that you're consuming, whether it's a piece of fruit, whether it's a fatty coffee, whether it's, you know, all these things, those things do matter. So I'm a proponent of clean fasting and clean fasting means in a fasted state, if you want to get the best results, it's really understanding like what can you consume? Water, electrolytes, bitter coffee, bitter teas, because bitter is actually information for our bodies. So understanding that if you're consuming something sweet, your body thinks, oh, good, food's coming. So there's something called a cephalic phase insulin response. And in response to something sweet on your tongue, your body is going to secrete insulin. And so that's another common mistake people make is that they think if something's under 50 calories, it doesn't count. If you eat something sweet, it doesn't count. The other thing that is common to see is people will break their fast with a carbohydrate, as an example. Like there's nothing wrong with having a piece of fruit, right? It's there's some fiber, there is some sugar in that, but it's natural fruit sugar. But you always want to break your fast with some protein. So whether it's bone broth, a piece of fish, a piece of chicken, etc., you want to always break your fast with protein because that will help buffer that blood sugar response. Because the one thing that people don't realize is that different macronutrients, so protein, fat, and carbs, have a different net impact on our blood sugar response. Fat is going to have the most negligible, then protein, then carbohydrates. So if you're getting some protein in, it's going to block that blood sugar response. So never, never, never just having, don't sit down and have a bowl of cereal or, you know, sit down and have a piece of dessert. You're really going to mess up your blood sugar and you're going to have a more exaggerated response. I would say the other thing that I see commonly, commonly done is that there's this mindset and I call it the triad. It's this, if a little bit of fasting is good, more is better. There are times when we should, when we can fast and times when we should not. Mm. And understanding that fasting is a form of hormesis. So it's beneficial stress. Remember I talked about this earlier, beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. And so if you are engaging in too much stress for your body, whether it's the time you are in your menstrual cycle, whether you just lost your job, you're getting divorced, you were hospitalized, it's like adding gasoline to a fire. So it's the recognition that we want to balance our autonomic nervous system. We want to balance the stress in our life. And the way that we do that is not forcing ourselves to engage in activities that are going to further stress the body than what is necessary given our personal circumstances. And as an example, because you're probably wondering, like, give me a tangible example. In 2019, I spent 13 days in the hospital, not because I fasted. I had a ruptured appendix and a lot of complications. 
I did not intermittent fast for at least three to four months. And that was because I had lost so much weight. There's no way I could not not feed my body regularly. And then I got back to fasting. So I think it's important for people to understand there might be a time in your life when you don't fast and that's okay. And then there's a time when your body is under less stress and it's easier for you to fast. And I think that's definitely an important message to share. But those are some of the most common mistakes I see people make. Yeah, I appreciate that vulnerability too. So thank you for sharing that. A lot of questions here and I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but there's an app out there. I use apps to track my fasting because I just suck at math. And when you add time, I'm even worse. So there's an app out there that says that if you have 30 calories or less, your fast isn't broken. That's false, correct? Yeah. That's not aligned with a clean fast. And so let me just be very clear. I am metabolically healthy. I'm a healthy weight. I'm not looking to change my body composition, although I like to always add more muscle. Let me just throw that in there. If I have 30 calories, it's not going to make a big deal to me. But if most if not all of the the people that I interact with that are fasting that want to change body composition and lose weight, those things do add up. Mm -hmm. And I think it sends a very kind of provocative message to people when they just say, oh, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. Ultimately, it does matter because generally what people are doing are the things that are going to derail their hard work. And so if you are a couch potato and you're addicted to a standard American diet, you might need a crutch while you are starting your fasting journey. And by that, I mean, you might be someone who needs to put some MCT oil in your your coffee, or you might be someone who needs to put some butter because your body is so metabolically unhealthy, it's going to take longer for you your body to be able to shift from burning carbohydrates to burning fats for a fuel source. So I think that I, I would be remiss if I didn't address that. Like there are certain circumstances where you might be able to do a little bit of a dirty fast to help get yourself over the hump, but with the intention of ultimately getting to a point where you can consume bitter coffee, bitter tea, water electrolytes safely and to be able to do it without issue. Like I don't even think about fasting. It's just so innate to who I am now. But when I was first doing it, it was hard. And a lot of it has to do with that mindset piece because your stomach grumbles and automatically think, oh, I'm hungry. Well, no, you're probably dehydrated. Mm. So it's really helping people kind of find those differentiators. I was just going to ask you, what is the differentiating factor, right? I mean, oftentimes, and I, I heard this, it could be a myth, I'm going to bring it up. But whenever I feel feelings of hunger or what I think they're feelings of hunger are, oftentimes I want to go for food, right? But also, you know, if I chug a water, I feel pretty full. I've heard in the past, and I don't remember the source exactly, that if you drink something warm, it essentially gives the stomach or whatever organ or whatever process, whatever, the feeling that you're full. What does warmth have to do with that, if anything at all? Yeah, I think it's soothing. I okay. think a lot of people enjoy the, like how many people enjoy wrapping their hands around a warm mug in mm. the morning? It's just a ritual. Like they enjoy the coffee, they enjoy the tea, whether it's warm water or, you know, if someone's, you know, doing a bone broth fast, wrapping their hands around bone broth or just warm water with lemon. I think it's a ritual. And I think for many people, they're cold when they get up in the morning. And so that kind of makes them feel warm and cozy. I think it, those ritualistic behaviors are not per se bad things, but but one thing that I, I think many, many people have been conditioned to believe is that every stomach grumble is hunger. And I tell people all the time, we are 
chronically dehydrated. Mm. And so part of the hydration piece is go drink some water. And if your quote unquote hunger pains go away, then you probably are, you're either just bored or you're dehydrated and your body, you know, senses that you are kind of hydrating your cells and hopefully you're adding some in electrolytes. By no means am I suggesting if you are really hungry and there is a huge differentiator. I know if I've lifted heavy, I may be breaking my fast earlier than I do normally and that's okay. Like I don't force myself to fast longer than than what I want to do. I'm never suggesting people ignore their hunger cues, but help differentiate because there's also the other thing that happens when you fast is that over time you get these counter-regulatory hormones that will suppress hunger. Mm. That's why people will sometimes say, oh, I didn't even realize I hadn't eaten. It's hours and hours later and I'm in the midst of a project and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. I haven't eaten. That's not a bad thing. Your body is setting you up to be able to focus on the task at hand as opposed to being focused on food, right? But we're such a hedonistic culture everything's about food, but really it's less about the food and it's more about those kind of impulsive, you know, thought processes. Our our mind is always looking for pleasure. It's a pleasure seeking, you know, it's in many ways, a very pleasure seeking organ. You know, it's like, Ooh, I want that dopamine hit, you know, Mm. give that to me, go check your phone, go, you know, grab that bag of chips, go have the ice cream. It makes me feel good for a minute. And then it's going to look for other things. But yes, I think that can definitely be one of many ways that people are sometimes surprised that they're like, Oh, now I can differentiate between true intrinsic hunger or, hey, knucklehead, you didn't drink enough water yesterday. Absolutely. I want to talk about mental health in conjunction with intermittent fasting. You know, I had mentioned that I come from a European household where my mother oftentimes when I was younger and growing up and going to play in the street, you know, play basketball or whatever at the park, it was always eat something before you go. Like that is ingrained in me to this day. So there are times where I've been on a fast and then all of a sudden feel some sort of anxiety anxiety popping up when I'm, you know, doing a fasted workout at the gym because I didn't have the meal that I've been conditioned to have before I go. So can you talk about that a little bit? Like, how do we break free of that? Well, I mean, first and foremost, you know, our first experiences with nutrition come from our families. Mm. I was part of a, my mom's really a first generation American and Italian. And so food was a huge part of our lifestyle. And my mom was ever forever chasing after me when I would go to school. I never wanted to eat breakfast. I was never that kid. I didn't like breakfast food, never wanted to eat breakfast. And so I remember saying, when I finally started fasting, as an example, I realized, oh my gosh, like this is what my body was trying to get me to do for so many years, but my mother was convincing me otherwise. So I completely understand the point you're trying to make. But when people are experiencing anxiety, people are feeling, you know, they've got, you know, a little bit of mood disruption. I start thinking about like, what were you eating the day before? What's your stress level like? How was your sleep? Because anxiety can be provoked by so many different things. We know the bulk of our neurotransmitters are produced in the gut. And so if we are not fueling our body with healthy, nutritious food. And that might look a little different for everyone. But if you're not consuming healthy fats, if you're not consuming enough protein, if you're not consuming a nutrient dense diet, you're not creating the building blocks to make those healthy neurotransmitters. I think unfortunately, we've been conditioned by the pharmaceutical industry that we need to take drugs to improve our neurotransmitters that act in the brain, but really they need to act in the stomach because that's where the digestive system is where the bulk of these things are created. So when someone's feeling anxious, I start thinking, okay, what did you eat the day before? What else is going on? What else do you have on your plate? 
Did you consume too much caffeine? You know, are you pushing your workout too hard? Did you, was your sleep terrible the night before? Because we know sleep can certainly play a role in mood and digestion and things like that. But I also think I'd be remiss if I didn't say, maybe sometimes we just need to break our fast earlier. Mm. You know, if you're really feeling anxious and edgy, feeling like your cortisol's up, like when I feel edgy, that's not anxiety for me, that's cortisol being up and I can feel edgy. And I always have to remind myself, like that's the time to do some deep breathing. That's the time to be kind to yourself. Maybe you have a cup of green tea, which has L-theanine, which L-theanine is an amino acid that can help with, you know, calming your central nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, put your feet up the wall, go take take a nap, go connect with nature. I mean, there's so many things that you can do, but I think there's a lot of different things at play that can mimic anxiety that can be related to, you know, the foods that you're eating or sleep issues or just being edgy. Like I know if I really push a workout and my cortisol's up, I can definitely feel like it's almost like this nervous energy and it's a byproduct of cortisol, which is fueling my body to go or to be chased by a rabid animal as opposed to, you know, just trying to get through a tough workout where I just don't feel as, you know, maybe as well fueled. The other thing that I would say is people that are doing low carb or ketogenic diets, and I'm a huge proponent of that. So let me be very clear and upfront. But sometimes if you're a really active individual, sometimes you do need, and this is very bio-individual, you may need a little bit more discretionary carbohydrate. Maybe you need to liberalize your root vegetables. Maybe you need a piece of fruit. And that's not a bad thing. Fortunately, I think we've demonized carbohydrates. That's the other thing that I think can be problematic. So we store store that as glycogen in our, in our muscles, in our skeletal muscles, and also our liver. And sometimes people are pushing their workouts so hard that they're depleting, depleting, depleting. It may be that you need to just adjust your macros a bit. So I think it can be a variety of things is what I'm trying to say. Do you do fasted workouts? I know that you mentioned working out a few times. I do. I do because I am a morning exercise person. That's part of like my foundation. And so whether it's HIIT or Pilates or strength training, I do it fasted. I just feel better. I'm not one of those people like I am not motivated to go to the gym in the afternoon or the evening. Forget it. If it doesn't get done (laughs) in the morning, it won't get done. And I know myself. And so there's no shame. If you're an afternoon or evening exerciser, good for you. But I'm an early to wake up, early to bed kind of person. Person, but I do work out fast and I've never had a problem working out fast that I know that some people do depending on like for women, depending on where they are in their menstrual cycle. I used to get headaches, like horrible headaches if I did really intense exercise, certain points in my menstrual cycle if I wasn't properly hydrated. And so I think it's a little bit knowing who you are. Like if my sleep isn't good and I'm not hydrated, those exercise opportunities are not going to be as intense. Like I'm more about like get in the gym, work out intensely and leave the gym. Mm -hmm. I'm not a social gym person. So if I see anyone ever in the gym, don't think I'm being rude. I don't wear, (laughs) I don't have my contacts or my glasses on. I am there to work and to get out. (laughs) So I I think a lot of it's dependent on the individual, like the power of the N of one, try a fasted workout. If you feel great, awesome. If you Mm -hmm. feel like crap, well, don't do that again. Or at least next time, make sure you're really feeling your body properly or do a little bit of experimentation to find out what makes you feel good. How do you prepare for those workouts? Do you put, I know that you said hydration is key, but like, do you put any like pink Himalayan salt in your water or do you just water straight up? I am all about electrolytes. Okay. I actually have very mild dysautonomia, which means I've always craved salt. I've always craved electrolytes. And I finally started working with a functional medicine doctor who said, oh, well, I think you're figuring out a problem. This is your solution. So I drink electrolytes all day long. I don't take a pre-workout. I I don't like coffee. I'm probably one of the few people in the world that doesn't. I do like green tea, but I actually prefer it iced. So for me, I go to the gym with water, my electrolytes, and that's what I drink 
throughout my exercise and then I come home and that's worked really well for me. But I'll, I'll be the first person to say the older I get, if I have a crappy night of sleep or if I'm super stressed out, I don't push those workouts. Mm. I will I walk every day with my dogs, but it may be that I walk outside in nature. I take a nature walk with them. I just do, maybe I do more stretching and Pilates. It's a little less intense. So I think it's important to just figuring out like what works well for you. Absolutely. Does intermittent fasting's benefits ever hit a peak, right? So for example, if I fasted 16 and 8 for 365 days, will I ever hit a peak of the benefits that IF can offer me? Well, I'm a proponent of just like we don't do the same exercise every day, mm. we don't eat the same foods every day. I think it's important to have variety in all areas of our lives. So like that's why I'm a proponent. Once you've mastered the 16-8, then you should play around with some different types of fast, longer, shorter, you know, maybe you do a one-day fast, a two-day fast. I mean, it depends on your goals. Do I think that you kind of reach a, a point of, you know, less benefit per se? No, not really. I, I think much like anything, the longer I've been fasting, the less really long fasts I do because I'm more concerned about maintaining muscle mass at the expense of not doing a lot. Like you will never hear me say I'm going to do a three or a four day fast. There's no point for me. I will lose muscle and I'm just not willing to lose muscle. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, each one of us has to decide like, what are your goals? And then, you know, some people are trying to lose fat. Some people are like desperate to get to break through plateaus. Then those longer fasts, a 30, 16 or doing a two day fast or doing a five, two, I mean, all those variations of fasting, I think could be beneficial, but I think all of us should be alternating what we're doing. And I don't even care if one day you fast and the next day you don't. I think variety is what keeps our body makes our body stronger. I would say, you know, I don't go to the gym and do the same thing. In fact, I'm so competitive with myself that every time I go to the gym, I want to lift more weight, even mm -hmm. if it's five pounds, two and a half pounds, I want to be lifting more weight every time because that shows me I'm making progress. And so much like you're trying to stress those physical, the physical skeletal muscle, I like to stress my mental muscle by, you know, doing different things, whether it's, you know, trying different supplements, whether it's, you know, trying different adaptations of fasting, whether it's, you know, figuring out like as an example, dry fasting and there's dry fasting that's, you know, more extreme than the other. There's like a, a soft dry fast and then there's a harder dry fast. Those are all things I'm very curious about, but I think it really comes down to like, who are you? What are your goals? For me, mine is not to lose muscle mass. So I don't want to be one of those people that just eats one meal a day to live six months longer. To me, it's much more important that I maintain that muscle mass to maintain insulin sensitivity to ensure that, you know, I'm as metabolically healthy as possible. Absolutely. I mean, you've answered almost every question. I mean, I could imagine. So I want to ask you, what's a question you wish more people would ask you? And how would you answer that? Mm. You know, I, I think a lot of what I like being asked or what I hope I get asked is more about mindset because, you know, we've just been through two years of pandemic and post pandemic. And I think on a lot of levels, it's shown people the potential of what they can be. Mm. So for me, I look at life in general through adversity comes great opportunity. And so it could be a little thing or a big thing. And so I, I think when I reflect on the stuff I enjoy talking about the most, a lot of it's the mindset piece, like how can we widget or figure out how to work through tough times? And, and this can apply to fasting. Like if you're new to fasting and you're struggling and you're like, this sucks. And I don't know what this woman was talking about. <laughs> this is not easy. It's the understanding that through you know, adversity comes opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so much like I tell my children, you know, being a lifelong learner, 
being open to new alternatives, not being rigidly dogmatic. Gosh, the last three years, if that hasn't taught people anything, rigid dogmatism gets people in trouble. Um, I, I think a lot of the mindset stuff is what I enjoy most talking about because that's the needle mover, not intermittent fasting, not, you know, eating a nutrient dense whole foods diet, which is important. Mindset is everything. So what was the last opportunity that came about for you through adversity? Oh, my big one. So I alluded to the fact that four years ago, I was in the hospital for 13 days. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I had, I had agreed to do a second TEDx talk. And the first 13 days I was in the hospital was horrible. Number one, because I knew how sick I was. Number two, being a clinician myself, I had taken care of people as sick as I was. And towards the fifth day, which is when I hadn't eaten in five days and I, had, I was losing so much weight, they wanted to give me supplemental nutrition. It's called TPN. It's total parental nutrition. It's like a bag of crap, but the bag of crap is going to keep you alive, right? I had said to myself that number one, I wanted to get out of the hospital to be home with my family. And number two, I still wanted to do this talk. So I left the hospital after 13 days. I'd lost 15 pounds. Wow. I had every complication you can imagine. I went home with a central line, drains. I was a hot mess. And I remember when I got home saying to my husband, I, I had missed every deadline for this talk, like versus to have our talk and meet with our coach and all this other stuff. And I said, can you send them an email? I, I still want to do the talk. And of course, they thought I was crazy, but they were willing to talk to me. So 27 days after I left the hospital, I did a talk that changed my life. And the only intention I set for that talk was to show my kids I was okay. Because at the time, mm. I had an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old. And every time they saw me in the hospital, I finally asked my husband not to bring them because they were so scared. And it made me incredibly sad that I couldn't be home. And so the reason why I share this is that I think for a lot of people, we get so caught up in the moment that we don't realize what we're truly capable of. And I tell people all the time, that was the sole intention I set. And yet that decision was one of the most important ones I ever made because it changed everything. It changed the trajectory of my business, my families, like our everything. I mean, when I say everything from simple to substantive changed everything. And now it's very, I can't actually watch that talk. I never have because my brain had not caught up with my body to realize how sick I had been. Mm -hmm. But yet understanding that through adversity comes great opportunity if we're willing to step into our greatness. And so the reason why I wanted to share that in particular is, I mean, that's obviously a dramatic example, but that echoes throughout our lifetime. We have so many opportunities to just show up and do the work. Like no one would have criticized me for not showing up to do that talk. They would have said, oh, you poor thing. My gosh, you've been through so much. And I think event organizers thought I was a little crazy, but I kept insisting this is part of my healing journey. And this is why it's so important for me to, to you know, do this talk and this message. And they took pity on me. They let me be the third person to speak, which was actually a blessing. I didn't have to wait the whole day to do it. But I, I think it's just, it's helpful for people to know that you can go through what it seems to be like the worst thing you've ever gone through. And I, I was very sick. I almost died in the hospital and then take something that is so seemingly horrible and turn it around and make it something wonderful. Like I'm so grateful I had that experience because I'm not the same person. I just saw my one of my college roommates a few months ago and I kept saying I'm not the same person I was before February 17, 2019. That's the day I was hospitalized. Yeah. So I'm not the same person and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I'm curious to learn and just mere curiosity here, what was it in your life that led you to believe that you were capable, right? Like you're sharing this story and obviously you proved to yourself, you proved to the world, you proved to your family, you proved to your, your children that yes, like I was capable of doing this. We're all capable of doing so much more than we believe we truly can. What was it for you though that said, you know what, like I already know I'm capable. Let me prove it. 
I think I'm probably one of the most stubborn people in the world. And <laughs> I, I think that's a byproduct of my upbringing, to be completely honest with you. I had parents that got divorced, like most kids in the 70s and 80s, they got divorced. And I was forced to become a very independent person. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of trauma growing up. And a lot of people never knew that because I didn't wear that on my sleeve. And there's no judgment for people that do. But I, I've always been very much intrinsically internally motivated person. And I credit a very loving family for that. I, I really do. Extended family, I had wonderful relationships with aunts and grandparents and a cousin in particular who is like the sister I never had and very close girlfriends. And so I think through their love, I really created like a structure in for me to be a survivor. And I tell people all the time, like I'm a survivor multiple times over, uh, but I don't even think I fully realized that and until the universe pulled the rug out from underneath me in 2019. So I think that I've always been a fighter. I've always been stubborn. And for me, no one was going to tell me no. Like that was in my mind. It was like, this is going to happen. I'm going to do this talk. Even if they don't think I'm capable of doing it, I'm going to do it because... I need to do it. And so I think that's intrinsically who I am. I think I've always been someone that's been like very methodical about not rigid, but like very methodical about just doing the work mm -hmm. like throughout my lifetime. I'm one of those people. I'm a huge proponent of Reiki and energy work and therapy and, you know, self-improvement books and whatever, you know, being around great humans that make you want to grow and evolve as a human being. And so I, I think that it has a lot to do with, I always say that God didn't give me the parents I wanted. God gave me the parents I needed mm. because through that, it allowed me to rewrite what I grew up with and in and have a very different situation at home. Like the person I married, the children I have, we have very, very close and, you know, tell my kids, like, you genuinely have it so good. But I say that from a lo very loving perspective, not a shameful, like, oh, you're so lucky. Um, it's more <laughs> like, truly be grateful. No, I'm serious. You know, like, sometimes moms will do that. It's like, they'll shame you into things. But really from a place of like, you don't realize, I never want you to know what I went through. But I'm so grateful that you have a much different upbringing than I did. I love that. We're going to have to do part two on that topic, but I only have you for a few more minutes here. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you two more questions. Firstly, I want to let everyone know that's tuned into this, that Cynthia's contact information in regards to socials, websites, all of that good stuff will be in the show notes. I will ask you, do you have anything going on that we should let people know about that will also be in the show notes? Yes. I have two new supplements that I created out of response of frustration and not being able to find what I wanted mm. for my patients and clients. So I have creatine monohydrate which I think probably many individuals are familiarized with. What most people don't know is that as an example, women make 70 to 80% less intracellular creatine and everyone benefits. My teenagers take it. I take it. My husband takes it. Creatine is a supplement that all of us need and want because you can't get enough from your diet. And it's really important to help with metabolic health, muscle health, et cetera. And then myo-inositol, which is a little bit of a mouthful, or you can just call it inositol. It's one of my favorite supplements for sleep. It's fantastic for metabolic help. It helps with insulin sensitivity. And there's a lot of solid research on utilizing it for mood and anxiety and OCD. And actually, I have an expert, a clinical psychologist who uses it in her work. That's not my area of expertise, but she's going to come on and talk about that next month for my podcast, Everyday Wellness. But I would say those are probably the two really cool things that are, I love that. That are going on right now in my world. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll definitely have that in the show notes. But I want to squeeze these last two questions out of you. I'm always curious to ask this. It was actually asked to me on the show. And I was like, wait, that's a great question. Knowing what you know from our very brief interaction here, 
how would my life or someone else's life that's listening to this be different if we knew what you know? Oh, goodness. I would say, you know, the big things are number one, sleep is highly undervalued and appreciated. So everything that I understand about the body benefits from high quality sleep. Mm -hmm. So I'm a sleep hacker. I'm all about a sleep stack and figuring out ways to make my sleep quality better. I track everything. Again, I'm a little bit of a data nerd. So like an aura ring and all the other accoutrements. So I would say sleep is should be far prioritized over a lot of other things. Like don't stay up and watch the ball game, go to bed. (laughs) My husband would be upset if I suggested that because he was watching hockey last night. (laughs) I would say the other thing, yeah, he he stayed up really late. He got home from Boston on a business trip and stayed up watching hockey. And I was like, really? Like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) I would say the other thing is probably eat more protein. Mm -hmm. Like if you really understand the changes that start happening in metabolic health and our muscle health in terms of locomotion and just being able to get off toilets as you get older, if you're in your twenties and thirties, you're like, this lady's crazy. No, I'm telling you, I've seen it far too much of it. People who start losing muscle strength as they're getting older, it doesn't get back. I mean, you actually have to work diligently against, you know, the physiologic changes of aging. I would say those are probably the two biggest things. In addition to eating less often, it's going to benefit fit you on every level, including helping with metabolic health and sleep as well. I love this. I absolutely love it. I mean, I'm going to make sure that I'm eating more protein because you're the second person that's been on the show (laughs) to tell me that. So it's coming. But last question for you, if Cynthia lives to whatever year she wants to live to, she impacts as many people, she does every single thing she wants to do, but you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. Like this piece of advice would be like etched into the tombstone. What would that advice be? Well, in light of the conversation we had today, I would say through adversity comes great opportunity. Mm. I mean, that's that's something that I talk about a lot because until you've walked through the fire, you can't appreciate that. But, you know, our our trials are not our setbacks. It's like, you know, reframe it and move forward and help other people understand that. I think that that's the greatest gift. If my kids have learned nothing else from me, it's that yeah, these little hiccups, these little challenges are all they're all designed to make us stronger and make us more resilient. Absolutely. Cynthia, I appreciate this so much. You are incredible. Once again, you can connect with Cynthia through the show notes of this, but thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You have just tuned in to episode number 279 of the Decoding Success podcast featuring our friend Cynthia Thurlow. Now you can connect with Cynthia in the show notes of this episode. You're going to be able to find everything from socials to websites to TED Talks to podcasts to books and everything in between. Again, If you want to connect with Cynthia, head over to the show notes of this episode. Check her out on social. Let her know that you heard her here on Decoding Success. Furthermore, I need to let you know this again. You have the opportunity right now, right here in this present moment, as my voice is coming through your speakers, your car, your headphones, your phone, whatever it is, you have the opportunity to be a beacon of light for the people that you surround yourself with simply by sharing this podcast. And here's why. There's people in your life right now that are ready to take that next step, whether it be with their health, whether it be with their relationships, their career, their business, or anything in between. You now have the opportunity to show them where that next step is. It's as simple as that. You have the ability to dust off that next step. Just think about it in your life when you don't necessarily know where your next step is going to be. You have that opportunity right here at your fingertips today to show the people in your life where that next step is simply by sharing a podcast with them. So share it via text message or social media or word of mouth, whatever it is. Listen, if you share it digitally, let us know so that we can show you the love back. It's a chain reaction, right? We're amplifying the messages of incredible people just like Cynthia impacting you, our community members. You have the opportunity to impact the people that are in your life. 
chain reaction. It's a very powerful thing. And we want to thank you for being a part of it. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.